Exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And this is episode seven. Finally, we're through the end of our second month. And hopefully through with uh, really depressing movies for a while. We'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, this has been a clean sweep. Um, like you are saying, I think, last, last week, about how we haven't watched a movie yet where one of the main characters doesn't die horribly. Yep. Um, we're talking about the deer hunter today and I hope you've all seen it, um, because we're going to talk about it. So if you haven't, you should, uh, you should go watch it. But yeah, um, <laughs> if you are familiar with the movie, then you know, uh, that yeah, one of the, one of the characters, uh, Christopher Walken dies Nick, yeah. horribly. Um, and I was thinking about it, like, it's not just this month. It's like all the, all the movies you've watched so far, including yeah. Carrie and the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, not so much Blair Witch because, like, I guess you, you know it's mysterious as to what exactly happens, but they disappear. I mean, so it's assumed they're dead. Yeah, but I mean, Carrie was like that. That to me was a very sad uh, movie to watch. Yeah. And. Um, this yeah, it's just been one depressing movie after another. <laughs> Hopefully that will change next month. It's Christmas time. Yeah. December, right? Holly Jolly Christmas? Yep. That's what we're doing? Yeah, we're gonna have a Holly well, Jolly Christmas. <laughs> we're gonna talk about that later, but for now we'll talk about the Deer Hunter. Um so this is my first time watching it. Um you had seen it before? Yep. Uh I'd seen it once on T V in um maybe junior high and then um i have this like ocd thing where i have to own all the movies that were nominated for best picture on dvd how are you doing uh, with that by the way i mean not, i'm i'm not uh, i'm less than halfway there well uh, <laughs> let's forget about uh, like because i'm assuming in recent years like you haven't collected like the more recent nominees Especially I've since, been trying. Especially since they upped it to like 10 films yeah. a year, which kind of makes it harder. I mean, I still buy those uh, when I can. It's going to be hard now that Blockbuster is gone, because that was usually the thing. Like, oh, I can buy really recent movies there when they have their like three for 10 deals and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Now I'm going to have to like buy them online or something. But Got to join the modern age. <sighs> I'm not ready. <laughs> But anyway, I, I got the Deer Hunter when I start, kind of like when I was starting to do that at um, at Reds, which no longer exists. Um, part of their four twenty sale, four movies for twenty dollars. How they come up with that number? I have no idea. Maybe mm. they're really into Hitler or something, because that's his birthday. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> the Hitler celebration. <laughs> four movies for twenty dollars. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so like when I bought the DVD, I watched it. Then I don't. I don't think i'd seen it since then until yesterday i started watching it around 3 30 in the morning 
the movie is 183 minutes long. And um, by the time I was done, I ended up just staying up for the rest of the day. And that was the first time in a while I'd been up for two whole days. It's pretty weird. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't know before uh, yesterday that the movie was three hours long. So I wasn't really ready for that. I was like, oh, God, how am I going to you know, find the time? But yeah, I watched it earlier today. And um, it's a great movie. Yeah. It really is. It, re- it really is a fantastic movie. Um, I had seen, like, certain parts of it before. Um, somehow, some randomly somehow I had seen the... Uh, opening scenes where they're in the bar and they're singing yeah um before the wedding and before they go out hunting i'd seen that scene and i'd seen the first russian roulette scene in the uh in the prison camp and that was i think when I, while i was at school i think in one of our classes they showed that scene um for some reason i can't remember what they were pointing out about it but um so it was kind of out of context for me. So in my mind, I just assumed that like that was like the end of the movie because it's like they're looks like they've been in this camp for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's this like super intense scene and uh, it ends with them escaping. So I was like, OK, you know, that's the end of the movie. <laughs> but so I was surprised to see that. um it's not just the Russian roulette scene, that one instance that the the concept, the whole game of Russian roulette plays a much, much larger role in the movie than I had kind of expected it to. Yeah. Um, and I just, I really like how we transition between the sort of like the home life and the, the war life going from Pennsylvania to Vietnam it just happens in like a quick kind of cut. Like all of a sudden we're just there. Yeah. And Robert De Niro is like unconscious and he kind of like comes to, and it's almost as if he's everything that we just saw is sort of just like this memory that he, or a dream that he has. And he's just suddenly awake now in this horrible reality where whole families of hiding people get blown up smithereens and (laughs) people are forced to play death games yeah all around i mean it's just really a lot of horrible things happening which was very controversial at the time and you know somewhat to this day as far as like the politics of the movie and it was seen as well the 78 like the two big vietnam war movies came out coming home and the deer hunter and coming home was seen as like the liberal one and the deer hunter was seen as like a conservative one, um, mostly because of like the negative way in which the North Vietnamese are portrayed, and the whole Russian roulette thing, which everyone was saying, you know, there's no documented cases Where this of any of happening. any prisoners being forced to play Russian roulette, mm-hmm. and there's not like one sympathetic North Vietnamese character. But and the argument was made, and I think I agree with it. That it's more the whole Russian roulette thing is just a metaphor for like war in general and they're just like you're thrown into this game this war where you and literally you, your life is on the line you're gambling yeah. with your life like but just by going out there you are gambling with your life yeah that's kind of, that's kind of how i had sort of viewed it anyway um, and like um 
uh, who is it? Um, Bert Schneider, who had been one of the people behind Easy Rider that mm-hmm. we talked about last week, and he had won an Oscar for the documentary Hearts and Minds about Vietnam, and he got booed off the stage when he was uh, reading, uh, like as his acceptance speech, he was reading a letter at the Academy from, Award. Yeah, from the head of Vietnam, and they were like, "How dare you!" and like. John Wayne and Frank Sinatra came out and said, "We're sorry about what happened." <laughs> and, yeah, um, I had just um, <laughs> I did a little bit of reading. Um, actually, the only thing I read was the uh, inside notes in yeah. the DVD that you gave me, um, and that had said that like it was nominated for Oscars, and there as the ceremony was going on, there were people outside protesting yeah. the movie, um, Vietnam War veterans who were against the war, um, who I guess felt that this movie somehow glorified the war I don't really know exactly because I mean it says that there were Vietnam War vets who were against the war and they were unhappy with the movie maybe because of they the negative way that felt the, that it glorified the like the the fact that we were there like the Americans going in and being all heroic and they're seen in a positive light and that the North Vietnamese are uh, but the um yeah, I don't know. It's weird because like the the movie doesn't really concern itself with like politics at all. Like it's very it it's not really like it's not a movie about the Vietnam War necessarily. Like it, it ha- I don't really think it has anything to do with Vietnam specifically. Right. Well, like, on you the could surface, take the story does. and just swap it with like World War Two, and it would essentially be the same. Exactly. But the thing about that is, a lot of them were like, well, clearly the Nazis were evil. North Vietnamese, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but like on the surface, it's about the Vietnam war and right. that's as far as the people were willing to look yeah, before I gotcha. they started. And Jane Fonda, who was like very against the movie, possibly just because she was the star of coming home, which was running up against it. Um, you know, did, she never even saw the movie and she was telling people, don't go see this horrible trash. It's, right. So just- Hanoi Jane strikes again. <laughs> It's such a strange, like, notion. I mean, like, now with, with all the years that have gone by in between and, like, you know, Vietnam is in the past and everything, yeah. it's not, like, a thing that's happening now. I mean, I just don't see how you could really say that it glorifies the war in any way. Mm. I think, it, like, for as... And sometimes the movie really does feel like it's very... Like, you used the term epic last week to describe it. Yeah. Um, and it, sometimes it really does feel like it has this huge scale and is very epic. But like really, when it comes down to it, it's a very, very intimate story just about these three guys or more specifically, these two guys. Yeah. Um, and just their personal experience with it. And like we're very much in their own little world. They're just in the middle of all this stuff that's going around, on around them. And, you know, we see certain things happening, but like they never tell you like what like when even these things are happening or where they are or like anything. I mean, we know that they're in Saigon. Um, but other than that, it's kind of just like, I don't know. No, there's nothing specific like about the war. I don't, I, and I, I don't know if it really is trying to make a statement about any sort of political agenda. But I feel like it is making a statement about, um, sort of the theme of the month of American masculinity maybe not American masculinity but masculinity in general mm-hmm. the whole idea of like we're going out hunting and now we're going to war right. and like all these things yeah that is true 
And like, it doesn't seem focused. At, like, the director, Michael Cimino, he always said, like, it wasn't a political film. And the people making it, didn't th- like, Christopher Walken and Robert De Niro have said in the years since, they're like, we never talked about Vietnam while making it. it we shot films that, or we shot a film that partly took place in Vietnam, but we were never talking about the war. We were talking right. about the story of these guys. Yeah, exactly. So. And another thing is, like, I, in reading in those DVD notes, it says that the movie takes place over the course of 20 years. It says two decades, I think. And that was a notion that I didn't really I didn't, get at all. I, didn't, I don't think I read the notes, or if I did, it was when I first bought it years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember uh, reading that part. Yeah, I read that after finishing the movie, and I was like, 20 years? Like, it doesn't feel like that. Um. And to me, that kind of just, it, it kind of goes more to show, like, they're not, the movie isn't concerned with, like, plotting the, you know, it seeing Vietnam for what over, it was or, like, anything like that. Yeah, it couldn't have taken place over the course of 20 years. If he returns, if he returns to Vietnam to find Nick right at, like, when the helicopters are taking off the fall of Saigon in 1975, that would have been, that means when they were working in the steel mill the night before the wedding, the night before they went hunting and went off to Vietnam, that would have been 1955, which Americans shouldn't have been going to war in Vietnam in 1955. Yeah, so I don't know. Well, actually, I have the notes right here. Let's take a peek at what they say. It was kind of jarring when he goes back and it shows the helicopters that they use, like, stock footage of them. Like, they... They spared no expense with the rest of the movie, but for that, they were like, let's just cut in this footage, which kind of like took me out of it a little bit. Okay, it says, the story concerns a group of steelworker pals and spans two decades. So, I mean, I guess they could say that like 60s, and 60s into the 70s. Okay. That makes more sense, because I read that and I was like, two decades, so, you know, in my mind, I just thought 20 years. Okay, I'll buy that. And you never know how long they were in Vietnam. Right, yeah. yeah and they could have been over there for like... A year, there could have been like a leave in there, then they went back or something, and then we don't know how long they've been in there before they meet up after that, yeah. after Michael sets that guy on fire. <laughs> yeah. And then he walks right by his friends and doesn't even realize who they are, which is a creepy part. It's kind of unsettling. Yeah, and which kind of comes back yeah. later. Um, I mean, really, the the movie is is mostly about just like post-traumatic stress syndrome. And just like the this, this, the sort of just immediate sort of personal effect that like going into a situation like that does to you and how it changes you as a person. Um, and I think that's kind of a thing that like is not necessarily strictly an American experience. Um, it could be like, you know, anyone. I mean, you could essentially tell the same story doesn't matter that the 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 nationalities of either side of, of the war you know i mean because it's just about how that experience just can totally shatter someone um the friendship between uh nick and michael christopher walken and robert de niro like at the center of the film is is really interesting, and um, just because of stuff we've been talking about the past few weeks, like, I kind of was watching it this time, just, like, looking for things, you know, and... Um, that kind of connected to the three films we've watched this month Yeah. previously. Um, and <laughs> Michael could very well be uh, 
madly in love with Nick. Yeah, and you know, just like this quiet guy, uh, John Cazale's character is always hooking him up with women, and mm-hmm. nothing ever comes from it. And um, the one time he ever like tries to make a move on a woman, the Meryl Streep character in this film, he's drunk, and it could just be he was just watching her dancing with the one he really wants to be with. It could have been like a displacement thing, and oh, at the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's how. That's I was trying. I was starting to think maybe that's what was going on. Yeah, I mean, because uh, like, clearly he's kind of somewhat interested in, you know, Meryl Streep, but when she's even like throwing herself at him, like he's not really responding in that way. Mm. Um, and it takes a while for them to kind of like actually, um, you know, hook up with each other. Yeah. And when it happens, like, he's just laying in bed, like, kind of, you know, he's just totally passive in the, uh, in the moment. She's the one who, like, comes and finally, you know, makes that happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and then, yeah, when, um, when John Cassell is, is says, you know, sometimes I think you're gay, it, yeah, I mean, you really kind of think, like, well, maybe that is kind of what it's all about but it's something that they would only joke about and because living in a steel town in pennsylvania they're not just going to be mm-hmm. like oh yeah that's michael he's gay deal with it like i feel like that's something he would have to remain in the closet about yeah and when he says you know when when he confronts uh nick at the end and he's trying to convince him to leave the 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 game behind and come home you know he's saying like i love you yeah. And you know, that could easily be just like the love that two close friends share. Yeah. But you know, it could mean more. Yeah, I mean, it is funny like how <laughs> strangely enough those these four movies and all all four of them concern themselves with these like where we're following just two two guys and yeah. kind of the friendship and relationship that they have uh with each other. Um like that that is definitely like the center of the film but one of the things i really admired about this is how well it paints a portrait of like that whole town that group that they come from mm-hmm. um because you got uh well john casal's character john savage's character who you know is the one who gets married and he goes yeah, to war with them yeah. and um george i tried pronouncing this yeah in an episode. george zunza zunza i'll say zunza um, who owns the bar, and then there's their friend Axel, who's played by someone they just found in a steel mill when they were doing like research for the film. Oh, really? Yeah, and he does a great job in mm-hmm. it. But I don't know if he ever ended, if he ever ended up doing anything else or became an actor. But that, his performance in this is great. Yeah, I mean the whole intro. All the I mean, and it lasts a long time. It's like probably nearly an hour. Yeah. Well, that's what everybody always says, and I was paying attention this time because, like, well, mostly because I'd read um, an article by Robin Wood a few years ago about the structure of the film, and I was looking at, like, you know, at, at certain points I'd hit display and see, like, where we were, and um, they go to Vietnam after 52 minutes. The wedding itself doesn't start until, like, the third, it's like, well, yeah, the wedding starts at, like, 28 minutes. So the wedding itself is really like 
tw- well, the wedding and the reception, mm-hmm. and like De Niro running around naked. Right, that whole night. The, yeah, yeah, that's that like, that's like twenty four, twenty five minutes. Um, but yeah, the whole first sequence is roughly an hour. And then the Vietnam is also fifty something minutes. Mm-hmm. And like, well, that's what Robin Wood's article uh, discussed. The interesting, like, you get almost an hour of them at home, almost an hour of them at Vietnam, and then like. 20-something minutes back at home, 20-something minutes back in Vietnam, and then just, like, a really short uh, coda, back, back like, epilogue home. type thing. Yeah, that is, uh... That is interesting. But it had... A lot of people accuse the deer hunter of just ripping off The Godfather and starting out with this big wedding. But the mm-hmm. thing is, like... I don't see it as, like, ripping off. It might have been inspired by that, but it's just... That's a great way to get to know a bunch of characters is to have a big event that they're all attending. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, like, and just watching the whole wedding, I mean, like, it brings to mind, like, weddings that I've been to with all my friends, you know? Yeah. Um, and just, it makes the characters very real because I can, like, you know, identify with them. I, yeah. you know, I've been to a wedding where, you know, everybody's, like, starts off and everybody's in such a great mood and it's just, like, everyone's just get shit face drunk and everyone's dancing like crazy people and then like you know a fight breaks out <laughs> blood is shed you know sweat blood sweat and tears like that's like you know i don't know if i've been that's to a good wedding <laughs> i'd like to go to a wedding like that sometime oh you should have been at tim and beth's wedding oh i didn't realize there was yeah they're fighting them there, there were fisticuffs oh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean it's so i mean it it brings to mind like just those great moments in life and the last actual like sort of shot of the movie is this quick um it goes through the cast like and we see um these freeze frames of all the different characters yeah i love when movies do that yeah it's it's nice because like you can kind of i don't know i will more more so identify like who each person was because if you see just see like a list of like names of actors and even characters like sometimes you don't make the connection of like you know Oh, you know, who was Axel again? And, like, you know, yeah. you just... And it's a nice little, like, curtain call for them. It's like, oh, Definitely, these characters, yeah. we haven't seen them in a while. We get to see them again right now. Like, Especially for a movie that, like, is as long as that one is. Yeah. And it's just nice to see them all, like, sort of happy again. Because, uh, you know, all the, the shots that they choose are sort of, like, when they're carefree and not totally shattered <laughs> human beings. <laughs> um, but the last sh- shot that they use is from the wedding, when they're kind of all together and then... Um, I think like Robert De Niro falls down or yeah. something like that. Um, and it kind of just feels like that moment, that, that night, that wedding night was sort of like the best moment of their, of their lives. It was at the time when they were like most happy. Um, and everything after that was just, will never be the same. Yeah. Um, so that like, I, yeah, I like, uh, being able to think back to the wedding as this kind of like happy event that they all shared. But I can see where like, you know, I mean, people it's, I think it's easier to compare it to the Godfather because you have two actors who were in the Godfather kind of like in this, in the scene. I mean, Robert De Niro wasn't in the Godfather, but he was in part two. He was in the, yeah. You know, two, two actors that are like identified mostly with the Godfather in this big wedding scene. And I think this might have been right after, or maybe right before, um, they did the TV version of The Godfather, where they edited 
The Godfather and Godfather Part 2 together and put it out in chronological order on TV. So, like, people watching that would just be like, oh, Robert De Niro is in The Godfather. Right, right. But, I've never seen that version. They used to show it on AMC sometimes. Really? Which, it was really interesting to watch. They would have, like, weekends where they would show The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 and The Godfather Part 3 and The Godfather Saga. <laughs> and the saga being, like, like everything all the fir- Well, the first two, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a lot of time out of your weekend, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it was interesting to watch it like that. But, yeah, John Cazell was amazing. And they, while they were making the movie, The Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. um, they knew he was dying. They made sure they got all his scenes first because they didn't know if he'd make it through the end of the shoot. And um, he did make it to the end of the shoot, but he died before the movie came out. And... Um, I think it was Robert De Niro who uh, paid. they couldn't insure him like to have like the backing of like a major studio uh, Universal did the movie like they needed to have insurance on all the actors so Robert De Niro paid what an insurance company refused to just like so John Cassell could be in the movie wow and um, Meryl Streep uh, was with John Cazell at the time I don't know if how long they've been together at least a couple of years I think it was like a very serious relationship um she w- I don't know about recently. I don't know much about her love life for the past 30-whatever years. But uh, I think as recently as like the 90s, she was referring to him as the love of her life. I'd like to think that if she was with somebody else right now, she'd be polite enough to not refer to a dead ex as that. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes that's, that's just the truth, you know I mean? Yeah, that's just mean. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're old, like, you know, later in life and older, like... It, in most cases, if you're like remarrying, like you could very well be remarrying someone else who is also remarrying and yeah. have already gone through like these devoted relationships that for whatever reason didn't work out. Like there's an understanding there that kind of, you know, well, we'll we can try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a different discussion, but, um, but he, every single feature-length film. I think he did one short when he was starting out, but every single feature-length film John Cazale was in was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. And, like, he didn't make a lot of movies, so his odds were better, but, right. like, he picked well. It's like, still, like, <laughs> very... Uh, yeah, I mean... So, besides the two Godfather films that he was in and The Deer Hunter, what other... The Conversation. Okay. Um, Dog Day Afternoon. That might have been it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, one. I'm trying to think of all the movies that were nominated within those six years, and uh, I think that was it. So he was only active like for just such a short amount of time. Yeah, and he was amazing in all those movies. Yeah, that's that's just really sad. So how, how exactly did he die? Was it like cancer? Cancer. Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's a shame. Makes it even more poignant when his sort of card comes up at the end, um, you know, during the the cast roll call. Yeah. Because it it literally is his curtain call, you know. Mm. That's a shame. One of the scenes that I somehow, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this movie. It's over three hours long. Uh, so naturally there's, there might be moments that you won't remember over time. And one that I caught this time that I didn't remember at all was when De Niro pulls the gun on John Cazale. 
mm. when they go hunting after he comes back from Nam. I can't believe I ever forgot that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he fucking pulls the trigger on him. Yeah. Like, it's not just that he points it. He actually, like... Mm-hmm. And because I didn't remember it happening, I was like, is he actually going to pull the trigger? He won't pull the trigger. And then click. And I love that they heighten that you can hear the click every time they're playing Russian Roulette yeah, or in that yeah. moment. Like, they make sure the audience hears a click. I mean, and that's the thing. That's the whole thing that, like, really, the, the the whole game of Russian Roulette, the way it's used in this movie, is really brilliant because it distills the whole stre- the, the the trauma of of being in a war and being in that situation mm. into just this one sort of thing that you can identify and like and relate to. I mean, it's one thing to kind of like show, you know, somebody kind of out there like shooting and killing people and like being shot at and stuff. And then to say like, you know, oh, I've been through, you know, a, a great trauma or like I've seen some some shit. Yeah. But I mean, when you're in that moment of like being forced to like shoot yourself in the head, basically, like and knowing that you escaped just barely with your life. Um, it's it's a, it's something that you can, I don't know, clearly sort of relate to an audience like this is how like messed up it was and just how lucky you are to be alive and just. And the guilt that goes along with that and the just everything and how people don't understand your experience, mm. you know, the way that he uh, carries that gun around and like casually points it at people and he's doing it before he leaves, before they leave to, to Nam. He's kind of like, you know, when they're out there and he's arg- arguing about the boots. Yeah, John Gazelle's kid. He keeps yeah. pointing it at Michael. Like, like, <laughs> and the whole time I'm waiting for something bad to happen, you know, like, yeah. he's going to shoot. He's going to shoot someone with that. Um, but then when, you know, uh, Michael comes back, like that kind of just sort of careless nonchalant attitude about, you know, this thing that literally is like, it's death and you're you're holding it in your hand and like, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's the, the whole Russian roulette thing is really used really, really well. Mm. And seeing Christopher Walken at the end as he's just sort of like descended into this just horrifying, mad spiral of darkness, <laughs> being in this, you know, choosing to put yourself in that situation. And you just look into his eyes and he, there's just nothing there. Like he's just completely vacant and he is dead. And I feel like it's really frustrating when it seems like we live in a world full of people who don't realize how great Christopher Walken can be. It's like Christopher Walken is like such a joke to so many people. Right. Because, and it's like, I mean, he's in on the joke. It's not like people are like making fun of it. Yeah, but I mean, like, like all has, the times he he's hosted his Christopher Walken and persona. Yeah. yeah. And like, he'll do like his thing. He said several times, like, oh, I've never said no to a script. And like, there's plenty of evidence in that when you look at some of the crap he's been in. But, like, there was a time when he would do these, like, amazing performances. And I feel like there aren't a lot of them that people are familiar with. Like, The uh, the Dead Zone, he's great in, which is just five years after this. And then, I, I don't know, he's just, it kind of makes me sad. <laughs> like, yeah. there's more to him than just that crazy voice. Well, even, stuff. like, you know, in this day and age, like, Robert De Niro is kind of, like, I wouldn't say fallen from grace or anything like that, but I mean, there was a time where like he was probably like the biggest 
most respected actor on the planet. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, it's only natural that new, newer and younger actors come up and sort of like, you know, take your place. But like he, in the last, like, I don't know, he's got 20 years, like he's, he hasn't really been in anything that's like a, he's like, he a defining found, performance. He found something he can do without putting a lot of effort into it and make a lot of money and he's been doing it and he's been doing good performances <clears throat> in there. Right. But it's and just like, crazy to look at like the pedigree of films that he was in throughout the seventies and eighties and even into the nineties, like just unbelievable that he sort of got a chance to be, to work with so many great directors and to be in so many timeless films. Um, this was, yeah, I mean, watching this, like I hadn't seen a a De Niro movie in a while, but like it was a, it was a reminder of just like, you know, how just fantastic of an actor, um, he is. And especially at his prime, like he, he was just, so good. I mean, I think he might have peaked with the movie Godsend. That personally, I think that's his masterpiece. Have you seen that? It's one of those possessed child movies, like 2004, I think. Oh, okay. With, uh, <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. Oh man, fantastic movie. Greg Kinnear. <laughs> that's that's how you know a movie's gold. When Greg Kinnear's in it. I don't know. I think Rocky and Bullwinkle was like you know, that was his prime. De Niro was in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah. Was was he Boris? No, Jason Alexander was Boris. Interesting. Okay, who was Robert De Niro? I don't know. I only know him from the uh, the trailer from it, and he did a parody like of himself, like where he did like um, he 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 was like a villain, I think. Um, but he was sitting in like a boardroom maybe, and he's like had this weird accent, and he does the whole like uh, "Are you talking to me?" speech. Um, and I think he's talking to Rocky and Bullwinkle. So it's like, it's very strange. Um, so they just keep saying, yes, we are talking to you? Because they, or... Like, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, and I could be completely mistaken. Um, but I'm, I'm almost positive that he was in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Because <laughs> um, I never actually saw the movie, but I just remember seeing that in the trailer and just being like, whoa. Now, now that I've brought up Godsend as a joke, I'm thinking about it, and it's interesting that, like, his performance in that kind of reminds me of um, in the 60s when, like, Vincent Price would sort of, like, ham up a lot of the villains he was playing. And it's it was almost like, oh, here's this guy who used to be a really respected actor, and now he's just like, ooh, I get to play a villain. I'm going to chew the scenery and kind of, like, make, like, menacing stares and stuff. I don't know. But it it, it wasn't a good movie, though, and... He wasn't that great in it. Yeah, uh, okay, I'm looking at IMDb now. Robert De Niro was, in fact, in the 2000 film The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. He played Fearless Leader. Huh. So, there you go. But, yeah, I mean, watching, uh, I mean, this this movie, he, he was he's just so good at playing these kind of, like, emotionally distant characters. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's perfectly suited for a role like, like Michael. Um, and I just, you, you just love how he kind of just, in some scenes, they'll just explode with sort of this almost like craziness and super intensity. But for most of it, he's very reserved and soft-spoken and kind of just almost goes with the flow. And then after the movie is over, the character 
Moves to New York City, shaves, starts driving a cab, changes his name to Travis. Yeah, I mean, like, he could, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, that was a very different character, but that would be, I don't know, just another Vietnam vet that De Niro played. Uh, yeah. yeah. And in um, Greetings and Hi Mom, two of his Brian De Palma films, in Greetings at the... Uh, end of the movie he ends up going to Vietnam and he tries to make amateur porn there and um, in Hi Mom it's like the sequel to it and he's this he again plays a Vietnam vet but they don't really talk about it much I mean it's a very political film but the fact that he is a vet they don't really talk about mm. that much kind of like in uh, Midnight Cowboy John Voight yeah it's like kind of a vet but they don't really talk could about be it. but you don't know we just get that shot of him on the stairs like that one shot in Harold and Maude where if you miss it you don't realize that she was in a concentration camp never seen Harold and Maude uh, it's not a spoiler or anything Just, okay there's one point where like Harold and Maude are sitting somewhere and um she like reaches her arm and her sleeve goes up or something and you just see like numbers tattooed uh, on her okay, arm yeah. and that's it no other mention of it whatsoever that's cool yeah that reminds me of um, in The Deer Hunter at the very end when Christopher Walken reaches for the gun. Yeah. And we those see fucking veins. these yeah, these horrible sort of track marks or yeah. something, these black streaks on his arm and like you don't really know what exactly had happened. Um, was it some sort of drug, like heroin or something? I would or? assume heroin. There were a lot of people who went off to Vietnam and came home addicts and or some who never came home like Nick or like Michael they came home but were never really home but yeah right <laughs> sorry <laughs> um but yeah that's a really creepy that whole moment. that whole sequence is really creepy and it actually kind of reminded me of um Apocalypse Now in a way where like Colonel Kurtz Nick has sort of gone AWOL and sort of become this whole, almost this other person. Yeah. Um, this somewhat mythological figure, not so much like, you know, but there's, he, you know, like Michael is looking around for like, he, oh, he wants to play the American. And he at first is like dismissive. He's in this like super, you know, high end secretive kind of like, club where where he's sort of like the the star attraction or whatever it's a local celebrity yeah <laughs> and then um you know they have to get on the boat and go down the river to this place where where he is and you don't know what you're going to find when when you get there you know you don't know what state he's going to be in um so that whole kind of thing kind of reminded me of apocalypse now but yeah when you do come face to face with him it's uh it's just horrifying. I mean, the thought of, of seeing one of your, you know, best friends, closest friend or family member or something, and then not even acknowledging the fact that you're there and not even, you know, not recognizing you or knowing you is just, uh, it's just the worst. And that moment when, um, they ask for, uh, I think it was his parents' birthday. Right. 
and Nick just can't. He can't remember think of it at yeah. all. Like his just, fa- the faces he makes, it's so like frustrating. That's like, it's almost like that's the start of it right there. It's like all his, his past is gonna slip away, and like, I don't know. <laughs> and you just think about like you know what if Michael had caught up to Nick on that, that first night, time, that first time yeah. that like he sees him in the in the club in the you know the roulette club. It could it, you know would have been completely yeah. different. Or what if they had been able to get all three of them onto that helicopter successfully? <laughs> and then, because, yeah. I mean, Nick probably just assumes that they died because he's safe in the helicopter. They just right. fall into the river. Yeah, and, like, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, as far as Nick is concerned, like, he has got to assume that they're both dead. Yeah. Well, not, I mean, well, although he sends well, money. He sends money. That's to right. That's right. Them, though, so, actually, that wouldn't make sense. So, never mind. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting to think. I mean, that he would send money to Steve. Yeah. You'd think that he'd send it to Linda. Yeah. Or that he wouldn't even be thinking about that at all. It could have been something where, like, at the beginning, when he first started doing it and was getting the money, he was like, you know, oh, just send it here. Yeah. He might have maybe sent it to... Steve's home like thinking that like oh send it to his widow because he was married and had a had a child on the way so maybe he was like starting to make this money and was just like oh send it to send it to his family but she doesn't get it it's right it's in Steve's right drawer, but then maybe though. somehow you know find yeah. his way to him I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh Yeah. That is a really frustrating scene when they're on the helicopter, though. Like, it's just like, seriously, they can't just get them up there. Like, mm. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah. But Michael is amazing through the whole Vietnam sequence, just how much he, like, he just takes over. And he's like, this is what we do to survive. And, like, we have to do this to get out of the camp. And then, like, once they're, like, in the river, we, like, we have to get out of this tree and mm-hmm. we have to do the, like... No, he was, yeah, I mean, he, clearly he was the strongest of the three. Yeah. Um, and he saves Steve, when Steve like lands on a rock. Mm-hmm. I guess he says when they fall into the breaks river, his legs. he's able to like pull him out. Not able to save his leg, but I don't think anybody could have at that point. But. He saved his life. Yeah. I don't know if Steve's very happy that he saved his life. <laughs> yeah. Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's interesting all the stuff they did in Forrest Gump with Lieutenant Dan's legs with like um, green screen. Yeah. Or um, I don't know if it would have been blue screen at the time. I don't know. But um, and then in this, they don't even it's not really I bought it. that Hey, the guy has no legs. Yeah. And clearly <laughs> his, his legs are just kind of like inside the, the wheelchair kind of just covered up. Yeah. We don't need any show off scenes of him hobbling about in a shrimping boat. We get it. Well, I mean, you know, it's like you don't need you don't need that, you know. Yeah. You don't need him falling out of the chair and crawling on the ground or doing any of that stuff because you know, it just doesn't call for it. But maybe that was another part that the coming home people had a problem with. And in coming home, uh, John Voight's character is a paraplegic, and um, he lives in a VA hospital, and like. It's not. It's shown as like a very horrible existence, and in this one, he's like, "Oh, it's great here. This is a great place to be." 
I mean, he's clearly in denial. Right. But, like, I don't know. I mean, it, something they it's more, I, I sort of thought it was more just, like, he's just unable to face his his family and, and really just go back to the life that he had. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, I mean, Michael kind of has the same issue. Um, that feeling of distance. And it's something that I imagine, like, and that was, really, this movie did a really good job of, like, portraying like PTSD in a very kind of realistic way and in a way that like you can understand like I can only I you know it's it's hard to imagine like suddenly finding yourself in the Vietnam War this literal sort of hell on earth and then having to you know and being there for you don't even know how long it's just this like blur of you know carnage and just always fearing for your life and not being able to relax and then going back home to a place where nobody's changed. Everyone's just like the same and they go about their same lives and like, you know, well, John Cazale has a mustache, <laughs> right? So, uh, but other than yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> and they're all just sort of like, you know, they all want to talk to you and all want to, you know, look Every, at your, everyone at the grocery store wants to hug you and, you yeah, and kiss in. you and like you know hug you and like look at your medals and you're just like uh, uh yeah there's just no going back you know you like when you leave and go into a situation like that like you will not come back the same person and it will never be the same way that it was before had you seen john savage and anything before i don't think so is he related to uh ben and fred savage by any chance i don't think so he might be. <laughs> what else has he been in? <laughs> um, what was his big thing? Crap. Well, this, I guess. I mean, he he really... Uh, oh, he was in Godfather 3. Oh, was he? I for, Yeah, so that's another so that's actor. A, so the three actors, they're all in... Uh, yeah, because Robert Duvall didn't want to come back, or he was out... He was working on another movie or something... So they were like, oh, well, let's say that his character's dead. And, hey, here's his son, played by John Savage. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. He had a very small role in Do the Right Thing. Um, which I was surprised that he's only in, like, one scene. But, I mean, it's a good scene. So, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, he was he was really good in, uh, in The Deer Hunter. I mean, because you you really see a very physical transformation. Like he looks so thin and just like, you know, basically skin and bones almost when you see him again, when he's in the hospital. And he's like, just like a naive kid when he starts out and he's getting married and everything. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to mind that his new bride is pregnant with what I think is John Cazale's character's baby. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's my theory. And I, th- I think the movie backs that up. Okay. See, I knew that there was something going on with the kid, because, like, in the early scenes when we see the bride alone in her room before the wedding, she's kind of, like, she kind of feels her her, her yeah. stomach and kind of is emotional. Um, well, that's probably also she just didn't plan on having a baby right, so I in didn't, a wedding Right, so I was like, okay, there's, like, you know. In, like, a Russian Orthodox Catholic <laughs> ceremony yeah um so what, what makes also, you say that uh, well when they're getting in the car to leave he says to 
who does he say it to? Nick or Mike? He says to somebody, uh, John Savage's character says that like he never really went all the way with her or something like that. And then um, John Cazale's character is very drunk and he says something like, I know the truth about this uh-huh. or something like so I don't remember just, the exact wording, but it's just like a thing. It's just going this background thing. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of great little background things in that whole sequence. There's characters that you really only see in like a few shots, but you like immediately understand what they are and what they're doing. <laughs> there's the scene where John Cazell is like watching um, that guy, like the DJ at the wedding. Yeah, the DJ, <laughs> right? Like, like feel around. I'm not gonna let that stand. It's a uh, like girlfriend his, his or date to the wedding or yeah. something. And he's like, you know, I'm not gonna let that stand. And he goes and just. Dex the girl. <laughs> she gets up and is like, I got a boo-boo, and he kisses it. <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? Maybe that was something else Jane Fon had a problem with in this movie as far as being right-wing. Not that right-wingers are abusers. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> it was very, it's like a, I don't know. I think John Ford would have laughed at that scene. Yeah, it was I like mean that kind of like Yeah, John Ford is all about the kind of like, you know <laughs> It's not a party until somebody punches somebody. Yeah. But I mean punching a woman in the face is just in the searchers they were like throwing look down like hillsides and stuff. The, yeah, I mean, that's true. His engine wife. Which that I, I feel like I would be able to appreciate that movie as a whole like a lot more if like that whole part wasn't in there. Good look. Speaking of the searchers, I was in um, a Hallmark store recently in the Aviation Mall. Yeah. Looking at the, uh, you can see here they have like their selection of ornaments. And do, wait, before you go on, do you do, is it, you do this like all the time? Like, do you go like every season and see what Hallmark's got going on? Actually, yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Um, it's because my dad, well, no, my dad really um, likes the Hallmark ornaments. Oh, okay. So it's kind of been like, a, I mean, he usually gets me uh, for every year for the past like i don't know seven years or so he's gotten me a hallmark ornament okay and because he really likes it like i go and i buy him uh you know ornaments usually it's star trek because he's he's a big star trek fan i didn't know they did star trek for hallmark yeah they've it's sort of like uh i don't know they've been doing it for for years ever since i think the 90s um every year they have a new selection of like star trek ornaments so I was going in to see, like, you know, which ones they had this year. And I saw um, a Searcher's Christmas ornament. Um, the Ethan Ethan Edwards, uh, John Wayne's character. Yeah. The sculpt on it was horrible. Didn't look anything <laughs> like John Wayne's face. But I was just looking at it, and I'm just like, that's such a weird thing to have, like, the Searcher's kind of Christmas like I don't imagine Ethan Edwards like fitting on a Christmas tree. I mean, there's some, there's a couple scenes where it's snowing. <laughs> That's, That's the closest <laughs> I can think of. That's true. I it's just, got a lot of about family in it. <laughs> yeah, a very dysfunctional family. Uh, but I don't know. It just struck me as very strange. It is odd. Yeah, I've never been able to really enjoy the Searchers. Um, I mean, I like parts of it. He's amazing in it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't like it as much as... I, I think John Ford's best Western was My Darling Clementine. <laughs> but anyway, that's... Uh... John Wayne was the one who presented the Best Picture Oscar to the Deer Hunter. 
Ah, another John Wayne connection, yep. which we had one right before he died last week. I think it was like two weeks later or two months later, two something later. John Wayne died. Two days and two hours. Two I think minutes? it was long. <laughs> Did he just drop dead on the stage after he presented the award? Be, Hanoi Jane would have danced on him. Anyway, <laughs> he had made a Vietnam movie that I still have not seen. It's known as one of the worst movies ever made, The Green Berets. That's which, crazy that he. Well, it was Vietnam. Movie. When you think of a Vietnam movie, I feel like the majority of Vietnam movies are anti-war movies, right? And he is not an anti-war fellow. No, I mean, and, he's um, from the days of, like, you know, the World War II movies that were all... Which is what he seemed to think Vietnam was. And that's right. the kind of movie he made. He directed it, too. Oh. He co-directed it with Ray Kellogg, whose other directing credits include The Killer Shrews and The Giant Gila Monster. Both of which I really enjoy. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> not exactly in John Wayne's wheelhouse. Yeah. And I'd seen another film that... Uh, John Wayne directed The Alamo, which I was shocked that I enjoyed. I'd heard horrible things about it. I thought it was really good. Although I heard that John Ford like, kind of like steered him through it. Yeah, gotcha. Um, but yeah, The Green Berets, again, I haven't seen it myself, but it's apparently a mess in which he just kind of views it as like, oh, we're just, the USA is off to fight another good war, and mm-hmm. it's just kind of shot on the back lot, and... There's like the one of the main characters is like a liberal reporter who's going to get the truth about the war, and by the end of the movie, he's you know he's changed his tune because he's seen what the Americans are doing over there. That's <laughs> crazy. Like that, like just it really shows like just how to out of date. Like yeah, he really was, and people of that generation really were. Although the, I mean, when the Vietnam War started, well, when U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War started, um. The, like it's, it, you think of it as like, oh, all the young people were against it, and all the old people were for it. But like statistically, there were more older people who were against it, and there were more younger people who were for it. It's it's weird to think of it because the, the way it's portrayed is hmm. like, oh, you see all this footage. From it's the like 60s you know all, all the, hi- the hippies stuff. and like you know the flower power and all yeah. that. Yeah. And then you see you know like Nixon at the White House, like all these young people, you know. <laughs> wasn't Nixon's war. He inherited it. Right. I mean, he the escalated the hell out of it. So but <laughs> Cambodia was Nixon's war. Anyway. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like how we see, um, you know, Michael and Nick and Steve at the beginning of the movie where they're kind of like, you know, ready to go out and they're like i hope they drop us right into the middle of the shooting yeah they send us where the bullets are flying (laughs) yeah and it's that's like that sounds like a line that would be like from one of those world war ii movies back in the 40s and the actual green beret who's sitting there is like fuck it yeah fuck it fuck it what fuck who fuck it it's just i don't know (laughs) So I can see how, like, maybe, you know, like, the young people are kind of, like, you know... Because a lot of young people probably grew up hearing these stories from their fathers and grandfathers Mm. um, about being in World War II and, you know, maybe wanting to, you know, thinking that Vietnam was going to be their their great war. Um, And also, if you're brought up 
post-World War II where the main villain of the Western world in your eyes is communism, right? then, like, you're just like, oh, well, the communists are in charge of Vietnam. We got to get them out of there. We got to save the world. Domino effect, etc. Whereas people who are older than that, they might be like, well, I remember a time when communists were just people who hung out at coffee shops and complained about things. What? what I don't understand the problem. <laughs> yeah. It's hard when you... Um, like when you're reading about the deer hunter and listening to people talk about it, um, to not relate it to other films, like... The main one, like, of that year would be uh, Hal Ashby's Coming Home, and then What the Deer Hunter Led to, which was Michael Cimino being given carte blanche to do his next film, Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. which is the big scapegoat in Hollywood history. Right. <laughs> it's like, the one that they it's like oh, that's to. the one that killed New Hollywood. That's right. the one that was, that was the end of it, because it was such a big flop. And, and it was this huge production that kind of just became bloated budget. They spent... At the, for the time, like, ungodly amounts of money. And it's not a horrible movie. It's not that great. Like, it's a beautiful film. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I actually I actually saw some of it, um, but I haven't seen it all. Did you see the, the roller skating scene? That seems to tend to be the one that people show. I don't think so. Um, but, like, Christopher Walken's in that as well, and he's great in it. Oh, nice. Um... And the main guy is Chris Christopherson. It also has right. John Hurt and Isabelle Huppert, um, and a ton of other people in like fairly medium roles. It's like a four-hour movie, <laughs> uh, and it, it's one of those things where like you know Michael Cimino is seen as like oh he he ruined it all. Like he, directors used to like have all this freedom in the seventies, but it wasn't necessarily him. It was just the six years after Jaws. You know things are. Changing and it's not like you can't just go and see. We're not going to expect to like make a lot of money on like a, a four hour. Well, not really art film, but not like a you know standard blockbuster. And also the producers let him do everything he did. Say is like you know you can't blame him if he's just sort of like asking for more and the studio is willing to give him more and then it doesn't make it back because they have to be the ones who are like making sure that it's going to be a profitable endeavor. You know. And it would be wonderful if it was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, here's, it's the problem with film as art is like, you think, oh, well, it's art. So just, it's artists and they get to just express themselves however they want. But it's, it's weird because it's mixed with business. Even so-called art films have business behind them. And concessions sometimes yeah, need to because, be made. I mean, Compromises like, sometimes need to be made. Unlike almost all other art forms, like film is... Inherently, it's a collaborative piece of of work. Like, you need other people involved to make it happen. And it's, like, the most expensive art form to play with because you have to pay everybody. I mean, yeah. unless you're working with, like, friends and stuff and you're just doing it by yourself. But even then, like, you're still going to have to... You're going to be winding up paying for things out of pocket. So, I mean... Yeah, it's, there's always going to be that financial aspect to it. And when a film costs an exorbitant amount, that increases the amount of money you have to spend on promoting it 
to make sure that you make your money back mm-hmm. to get people like to go out and see it and stuff. And there's Heaven's Gate wasn't a really prom- easily promotable movie. <laughs> right. Like I, it's like oh, it's a western. Not a lot of people going to see westerns in the early eighties. Yeah, that's um, at that time the western <laughs> genre had pretty much like petered off and wasn't really. Yeah, and like I mean Chris Christopherson. Christopher Walken, John Hurt. I mean, they're good actors, but they're not filling theaters. Right. Who else was the... Um, oh, Brad Dorif has a big role in it. Oh, cool. Yep. Young Brad Dorif. <laughs> um, but you said that the film is, is a beautiful film, and that reminded yeah. me... Of, um, I wanted to touch on just the, the cinematography in The Deer Hunter is really fantastic. Is Zilmo Zygmunt again, who, who did Deliverance. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, because the, the, especially the shots, like, while they're out hunting, like, in those mountains and the trees. Yeah. And the rivers and everything. Like, it's just drop dead gorgeous. Just really beautiful. And, like, in Deliverance, I'm like, I want to go out in those mountains. Yeah, like, and it feel, like it instantly brought to mind Deliverance. So, I didn't know that this, it was the same cinematographer. Yeah. Um, but you can really tell. I mean, it just like the the connection to nature that you feel in those scenes is really really great but i was watching it on on your dvd when you had lent me and the transfer isn't really that great um doesn't look like it's remastered yeah i think it's an early i'm not sure what the year on it is but yeah it looks like an it's early at least release. 10 years ago that dvd oh. came out probably it'd be amazing to see it blu-ray that's what yeah as i was watching it, i'm like i bet this or looks film. really really great um <laughs> either on blu-ray or if you yeah. saw it in like a film uh, print in the theater it probably looks fantastic um yeah I'd, I'd really like to see that yeah this was a year after uh Zygmunt did um Close Encounters which got him his Oscar ah and um it kind of um the deer hunter it's got like the hunting scenes especially it has sort of like a muddy look to it i think and i'm wondering if it that is part of the transfer issues or if that was something done on purpose because he had also done mccabe and mrs miller for robert altman where they um like they did stuff to the film stock to get it to look really old and like to get certain like muddy looking effects from it like to Mm -hmm. make it not as clear but i'm i'm not sure yeah i assumed that it was just like the the dvd Mm. version the transfer what do you think it means when um, they sing God Bless America at the end? Because that's been... People have had issues with that. People have been confused by that for decades. is not talking. <laughs> I mean... To, in, in a practical sense, like in the, in the sort of like... In the world of the deer hunter in that if you were there, mm. it was probably something like, you know, it was playing at the funeral... And um, was it Axel who was back there cooking? Or no, it was the... Um, I forget his name, but George DeZunza, the, 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 the guy who runs the, the, the bar. The guy runs the bar. He's well, like fixing the eggs. And so he just sort of is like humming it. And um, and it just catches on with everybody else. And mm-hmm. they just start singing it. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe to me it doesn't <laughs> seem that weird because like I'm in situations a lot with friends where we just start humming things and singing random songs. Yeah. But, I mean, that specific song, right after burying someone who right. died in Vietnam, not necessarily 
at war because the war was over and he was mm-hmm. he didn't die in war really he shot technically. himself yeah um but i mean like it's some people have said like oh it's like it could be ironic like the characters aren't singing ironically but like the film is putting it in there ironically like right. oh god bless america because it does, it does kind of bring to mind like the the you know the war films of the 40s where like you know a movie would end with like the score with a rousing rendition yeah. of god bless america and you know let's give it up for our boys in blue you know <laughs> but also, i mean one the way i look at it is like the film i think it's somewhat of a pro-american film in that like all the, I mean, you just talked about how beautiful the mountains were. Right. Like, what a great life they had in America. Why the hell did they leave America? <laughs> Look what happens when you leave America. And yeah. it's got kind of like a little, maybe isolationist stance to it or something like that. But like... But I think it's and not... And that could be why, that could be how the characters viewed it also. They could be... Right, like, and that, that's what like I think right. it's yeah. like. It's more about like, about setting that up for the character's experience and the character's story. Mm-hmm. Where it's like... In the same way that, like, when we jump to Vietnam for the first time, it's kind of like it just suddenly happens. Yeah. And De Niro's, like, you know, waking up from this, like, you know, like there was an explosion that just went off and he's knocked unconscious. He's lying on top of And it's kind of like, you know, these distant memories of this sort of, like, wonderful place that Mm. you kind of tend to idealize when you're not with those people or in that place, you know. And suddenly you're in this just horrible, horrible existence. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, you could, you just swap the uh, the nationalities. And, I mean, it could be, you know, Pennsylvania could be anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's home. It could be West Virginia. <laughs> it could be West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's home. And home, you know, is beautiful and serene and you know, you're uncomfortable and you're not, you know, you're relaxed at home. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily like them saying like, look how gorgeous America is. It's just, you know. Well, it's the end of the song. God bless America, our home sweet home. That is true. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it does have like a little bit of the patriotic slant to it. And it's a nice song. Irving Berlin. Berlin? <laughs> Irving Berlin, the guy who wrote it. Doesn't sound very American to me. All right. <laughs> he was a Jew, too. <laughs> and yet he wrote all those Christmas songs. Anyway. <laughs> right, he wrote... Um, White Christmas. White Christmas, yeah. that's yeah. All the songs in Holiday Inn. Um, yeah, I like how the guy... I wish I could remember his name. The George DeZumza character, um, like who is singing at the end. We see him singing in the choir early on. Right. Okay. And, uh, I, <laughs> I didn't realize if like that because they kept kind of going back to him in the choir. Yeah. And I was like, do we know him? Is he one of the characters? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I didn't make that connection. I thought we were just looking at this random guy that was in there. <laughs> kind of um, seemed out of place. And like uh, Nick, you see him making bets at the bar early on and then later on he's gambling with mm. his life and um 
Steve, you see him dancing at his wedding, doing that great Russian dance where they get down right, on, right. on like to their knees, almost kick their legs out, which I can't do. Our friend Steve Phelps can do that very well. Maybe he can't now, but he could do it like years who, ago when we did filler on the roof. Has to be, who also happens to be named Steve. So yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's just a Steve <gasps> thing. <laughs> but you know, and then like he ends up losing his legs, and uh, there's just like interesting bits of like things early on that match up later. And, like, it's, that's a neat thing, and, the, and that, you know, and the handgun, the revolver, that yeah, you know. Um, well, that's like one of those sayings. Um, Stan, uh, I can't remember what the saying is. Where it's like, uh, if you intro- if you introduce a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third act or something like that. And like, I think that's a saying. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've heard the same sentiment, but only the example was uh, was Gremlins, basically. Like you know, because you say the rules. If you give people rules, like they can't be fed <laughs> after midnight, you know, you don't expose them to water, um, then you have to break those rules. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although it is a different gun. John Cazale's character grows a mustache and gets a different gun, I think. Yeah, it is a different war. gun, yeah. He had a lot of stuff going on while they were at war. <laughs> <laughs> It's weird, um, like we were talking about kind of like what De Niro and Christopher Walken have become now, um, at least in people's eyes. Here's one of Meryl Streep's like first movies. <laughs> and now she's, everybody's just like, oh yeah, she's the best actress ever. Like she's, she's the best actress in the world. Like yeah. it's like a given thing. You don't really think about it or whatever, but like, yeah. she's amazing in this movie. She's heartbreaking to watch in this movie. Definitely. And gorgeous, also. <laughs> Definitely. But I think before this, she'd done... Um, I know she'd done Julia, which was nominated for Best Picture the year before. She had, like, a small role in it, though. You mean the movie where she plays Julia Childs? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the movie where Vanessa Redgrave plays some woman named Julia. <laughs> and Hanoi Jane plays Lillian Hellman. Another, another Hanoi Jane... Jane Fonda. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I don't really hate Jane Fonda. I just think it's funny that so many people still do, like decades after she was anti-Vietnam. Anyway, <laughs> um, but like, like after the the year after this, she did Manhattan and um, Kramer versus Kramer, which that's two Best Picture winners that she was in mm-hmm. right in a row. Um, and then she went on and became a like a superstar. Yeah, and it's funny that like even like today she's she's still a superstar, hmm. um, which is something kind of a rarity with you know especially with actresses who you know later in life um, older actresses um, usually have a hard time like even finding you know work, let alone like really great. Well, so many, roles. so many of the roles that are written for women in film are just, oh, you just have to be young and pretty. Right. Can you, can you play young? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, then we're looking for somebody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's very good um, at picking roles and like challenging herself. And I mean, not all the films that she's in are great, but she always like mm-hmm. does a great job in them. 
Yeah, so she's kind of like uh, bucked the trend and managed to uh, stay relevant and stay working in huge movies and be nominated like an ungodly amount of times. Mm. But yeah, I mean, she's she's really great in the, in the in the Deer Hunter. And apparently, she didn't. She only had like a handful of lines, I guess, when she was cast. And then after like rehearsing with her and stuff, they decided to like bulk expand up the her part. role. Yeah. A bit. Wise move. Definitely. And that's why the movie is 183 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, honestly, like, the movie didn't feel that, that long to me. No, but um, if I didn't know it going in, I don't know if I would have... It still would have, like, felt epic, but right. I, I don't... It never dragged. It wasn't like, oh, God, when are we going to get over with this part? <laughs> Kayla was tired of the of the wedding party, <laughs> so <laughs> she was ready for it to be done. But I, I, I enjoyed watching it because I, you know, I... I don't know, like I was saying before, I could kind of relate to, you know, those big weddings with all your friends and it's all the I haven't been to many like friend weddings but I went to when I was growing up a lot of like family weddings that's what it reminded me of like being a little kid and watching all the drunken tomfoolery right (laughs) and just thinking like oh that's funny they're all like (laughs) drunk and messing around and then like later I'm thinking back like oh no what was wrong with my family (laughs) I mean John Cazale wasn't going around punching any women but yeah and uh, De Niro wasn't running around with his dick hanging out. I'd like to see one movie where we don't see De Niro's penis. I bet Rocky and Bullwinkle would do that for you. All right. Actually, I, I don't know if I've seen many that show his penis. No, I don't. I, I think this. Don't know of any. I think this and 1900. I haven't even seen 1900, but I've seen a still from the movie where a woman. There's a naked woman holding his penis, and Gerard Depardieu's penis in her hands. Wow. That's all I know about that movie. And I, I, I want to see it, not for that reason. There's kind of a, <laughs> a similar scene in um, Once Upon a Time in America. Have you, have you seen that movie? No, I still haven't seen that. There's a scene where um, Tuesday Weld is uh, has De Niro and James Woods and a couple other characters in like a lineup. And she's trying to, and their faces are sort of masked. She's trying to determine who somebody <laughs> is based on their penis. Like she's trying to recognize them by their penis. Um, but I don't actually think you see see it. Any of theirs? Because Family Guy often makes remember. references to how great James Woods' penis is, and I'm wondering if you know to back that up because I've never seen it. In my memory, I don't remember actually seeing it. Um, but, yeah, anyway. Leone Cimino Bertolucci. Italian directors love De Niro's penis. Scorsese. Did he ever show his penis in a Scorsese? His penis in Scorsese. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> this is this is a fun podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk more about Robert De Niro's penis. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, we've been going for over an hour now. Uh, so we should probably talk about what's happening next month. It's Christmas time. Holly jolly Christmas. So yeah, the um, next month's theme. We're actually gonna like pick a theme and like actually flesh it out instead of just kind of being like ah horror movies. 
and picking two random films that don't have really anything to do with each other (laughs) (laughs) and just kind of randomly picking four movies out of a hat um like with this last month Um, but you know they they work together um you know they they do function uh somewhat together but we get five films for december five films we're calling it uh holly jollo christmas um now jollo what does that mean tim it means yellow in italian yellow in italian what does that have to have to do with anything well in the 20s uh there was a uh a publishing company mondradori and um they put out uh i don't know if i'm telling this correctly i feel like this might take a while if i do it this i know way. skip the history lesson what, okay get right, right down right. to it they're um <laughs> they are uh, a, a jolly are italian murder mysteries um, everybody's agreed on at least that part. There's a lot of different definitions of the subgenre or genre or style or whatever you want to call it. Um, they focus on uh, excess in uh, in style, uh, often content. Uh, the the murders are like the the murder set pieces are like dance sequences in Hollywood musicals, sort of like the. Uh, the narrative kind of stops for a scene and we get to watch these amazing murder sequences happen. Right. And um, they're very offbeat. They're, uh, I don't know, they're, they're tough to uh, describe. So we're taking a look <laughs> at uh, five films, Italian murder mystery films or Jalo pictures um, between... This they these were put out between the sixties, seventies, into the eighties. Yep. Uh, the first one, uh, it's generally agreed upon that um, Mario Bava did the first one in sixty-two. Uh, uh, La ragazza che sapeva troppo, uh, which translates to the girl who knew too much in um, the U.S. and England. It was known as the Evil Eye. There's there's pretty much every movie we'll talk about we'll get to talk about all the different titles given to the different uh there's a lot of crazy titles yeah that's sometimes the fun thing about yeah. <laughs> foreign films is all the weird titles that they're given like um like another mario bava one uh was um i always knew it as bay of blood mm-hmm. um another title it's known by which i actually prefer is twitch of the death nerve oh but there's right. it was also known as uh, ecology of horror um, and like ten other ones, including Last House on the Left Part Two. <laughs> That's uh... it came out a year before Last House on the Left, but when it was released in America, <laughs> at one point, the sequel yeah, to Last House on the Left. Well, that's like a Virgin Among the Living Dead is on uh, was on VHS as uh, Zombie Four, and it came out in seventy two. And uh, Zombie or Dawn of the Dead was seventy eight, so. I don't know. That's distribution for you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it started in the early 60s, and then um, there were a lot of films uh, that came out that were sort of like takeoffs on it. Um, and then uh, in 1970, Dario Argento came out with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which made a ton of money. So naturally, there were a ton of movies put out uh, to inspired by that. Yeah. 
And then between Bird with the Crystal Plumage and uh, Deep Red, another Argento, there were just like a ton of movies. And Deep Red, I think, is like the high point. And what of year the was cycle. that? That was seventy-five. So we're look. So that was kind of like just a five-year period. Yeah, and there were. I mean, like there were Jolly before and Jolly afterwards. Um, but that's really like the main cycle right there. And uh, and then they. I mean, they petered out throughout the eighties, and then in the late eighties, there was uh, stage fright and uh, opera. And then those were the last like big ones, and then there have been some since then, but not many audiences have paid attention since then. Cool. So yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at next month. Um, so we're kind of going back into the into the horror genre, to sub genre, but yeah, I mean, most people who know about it learn about it through horror. Although like lately, people are like, oh, well, it's not horror; it's it's thrillers. But I mean. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't really count as horror. Some of them are just straight up mysteries, but a lot of them probably the most famous of which would be Suspiria. Yep, that's uh, I don't remember what episode or was it when you were talking about Kill Baby Kill in the Deliverance episode? I think. Uh, yeah. Um, I talked about the Jalo Fantastico sub sub genre. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Where it's uh, it's a murder mystery that has uh, like a supernatural explanation to it. But uh, yeah, so sorry if you were looking forward to uh, a month of happy Christmas movies, but we'll uh, sneak one in. Well, we're gonna get one one uh, Christmas movie in there for you, and it will be. Uh, it's not a Jalo, but it's definitely connected because. Uh, when Jalo films got to North America, they kind of mutated into slasher films, and uh, we're going to be doing an early example of a sla- sort of like a proto slasher film. So maybe you can figure that what that one out is, but yeah. So we're, we're so what's the what's the first movie up? What are we what are we doing next week? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. I thought you were going to put together the list. Uh, um, yeah, I got these guys here. Okay, okay. I'm, um, I'm looking at a stack of probably about 20, 25 DVDs um, Tim has. Do you want to start with The Start, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, or do you want to see like a just a typical pre-Argento Chalo? Well, let's let's start at the, the very beginning. All right. It's a very good place to start. Then uh, next week we'll be talking about La Ragazza Che Sapeva Troppo. <laughs> You like to say that, don't I you? Do. I do. I, I, I took Italian for like a month, but I don't remember much of it except for uh, film titles, which I like to say, like Lo Squartatore di New York, The New York Ripper. That's a great movie. I've seen yeah. that one. Profondo Rosso, Deep Red. Deep Red, yeah. yeah. Or The Hatchet Murders in America. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what's nice about The Girl Who Knew Too Much is um, it's Mario Bava. It's actually on Netflix streaming. Nice. So uh, if anyone is listening and is like, how the heck can I watch one of these movies? Um, it's on Netflix. So if you have that, then you can you can watch it and um, join us in, as we talk about it. Join us. Join us. And it's got John Saxon in it, so you know you'll enjoy at least some of it. Everybody loves John Saxon. Yes. 
that's that's great. I didn't know that he was in it, but yeah, I mean, my excitement just went up. And he just might be in whatever Christmas movie we watch too. <laughs> what <laughs> Actually, could it be? What could it be? <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably a pretty good place to stop. Yep. So yeah, thanks for joining us for another exciting episode <laughs> of talking movies. This time, kind of, we were talking walking. Christopher Walken, that is. <sighs> I'm Max. I'm Tim. We'll see you next time. <laughs>